New York State politics notoriously corrupt. Samson is charged with embezzling mortgage money. Assemblyman Vito Lopez, he was censured for sexual harassment last week. Major corruption scandal involving New York's Governor Cuomo. Shirley Huntley admitted to setting up a sham nonprofit. Skeletons seem to just keep on coming out of the woodwork in New York State these days. Will politics be less corrupt if we elect more women to office? Several studies over the past decade have found that women in democratic countries are less prone to corrupt activity. It's undeniable that women are key to winning elections. They vote more than men, and they outnumber men. But two generations after Gloria Steinem helped push feminism to the front lines, women are still nowhere near parity in government. And as a result, despite the recent attention in the press, the majority of women's issues are still on the back burner. But it's not just about getting women's issues to be taken seriously. It's also about the perspective and leadership qualities women bring to government when they are elected. In 2001, a World Bank study found that, quote, one standard deviation increase in female participation in government will result in a decline in corruption of 20%. I'm Nomi Konst, and this is the Accountability Podcast, the only show dedicated to specifically discussing the corruption plaguing New York. Public deserves the right to know what's happening, and we are here to present you with weekly reports. Today on the Accountability Podcast, we talk about how corruption should be a feminist issue. This is a personal issue for me. I've spent most of my career working with women in politics. My mother was even an elected official, and my family, my teachers, mentors, friends, they all encouraged me to eventually run for office. And I did, but only because there was a unique opportunity that popped up, and I was pressured by dozens of people to do it. It was not easy. And after my race, which was by no means fun at all, I thought to myself, if someone who grew up in this environment, who had all the support in the world and encouragement and training, if I didn't feel the confidence when I was running, then how would other women, women who might be interested or women that we recruit, how are they going to feel more comfortable when they run? The political environment is not friendly to women, especially not new candidates and definitely not younger women. We at the Accountability Project think that having elected officials who reflect the electorate is vital to reducing corruption. And that includes breaking down the barriers preventing diverse candidates from running. On today's podcast, we're joined by Margie O'Mero of Purple Strategies. She's one of the few pollsters who specializes in working with female candidates. We're also joined by a return guest, Zephyr Teachout, who you may recall was a recent gubernatorial candidate here in New York State and shocked the country with her grassroots campaign that did well beyond expected against an incumbent governor. She's just published a book called Corruption in America. And later we chat with Erin Los Cutraro, the executive director of She Should Run, which is an organization focused on dramatically increasing the number of women in office by illuminating barriers. She Should Run is working closely with Women's Donor Network, which launched the Reflective Democracy campaign this week in Washington. But first, we urge you to learn more about our work at the Accountability Project by following us on Twitter at account underscore project and on Facebook at backslash the Accountability Project. The Accountability Project is a journalistic organization that investigates political misconduct in New York. We are a nonprofit and we rely on our supporters like you to spread our message. Erin Los Cutraro is executive director of She Should Run, a national organization working to dramatically increase the number of women in public leadership. She develops and manages She Should Run strategic growth and breakout franchises that combine technology, media, and action to target specific issues related to moving forward women's representation in government. Erin has directly advised over 500 candidates at the national, state, and local level on a gender-lens approach to running for public office. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today at the Accountability Podcast. We're very excited about this show. We've been planning it for for weeks. Uh, Yes. And uh, we've been waiting for this report to come out. Yes. Thank you, Nomi. It's great to be here. 
So you just released in partnership with Women's Donors Network and the Who Lead Us campaign. Do we live in a reflective democracy? We did some research, and here's what we found. We studied 42,000 elected officials who represent us, from the county level all the way up to Congress. 71% of elected officials are men, 90% are white, and 65% are white men. That means men have three times as much power as women, and white Americans also have three times as much power as people of color. When 31% of the population controls 65% of elected offices, is it a surprise that most Americans feel our democracy is broken? So you just released this this groundbreaking study analyzing just how many women are actually getting elected and how our leaders reflect the electorate. Can you tell us a little bit more about this study? Absolutely. And I want to make sure to give proper credit to the organization that did the work on this, which is Women Donors Network, an incredible uh, collective of women who give philanthropically to advance um, causes for women and girls in the U.S. Um, They looked at uh, a few things. First, uh, believe it or not, and it's it's often hard, uh, it was always hard for me to believe this, but we had no comprehensive mapping of women's representation in our country. So we have, yeah, it's really sort of hard to believe, but we have, of course, there are incredible organizations out there that are looking at specific states or that give the federal numbers or that, you know, even the um, national uh, state level councils that Mm -hmm. look at, okay, these are the uh, state legislative seats and what women's representation looks like. But there's no one place that you could have put this all together and said, okay, what does this map actually look like? So WDN, worked with a new organizing institute, actually, mm-hmm. to pull this data set together. And in addition to that, and I'll talk about a little bit about what, what we found, um, some of which was shocking and some of which, sadly, we knew. They also, and I think this is a really important component, looked at the the public perception of our public leadership mm. um, and sort of what are those messages that move people to care or not to care? What do they feel mm-hmm. like the barriers are? Um, so just a real, really incredible unveiling. So we have been um, working with WDN not to actually create the full credit goes to them on creating the, the report and doing the messaging research. But as She Should Run really falls into this place where we are one of many, um, and it is definitely takes many solutions to um, what we do about women's representation. In terms of sort of the big top lines from the the release yesterday, one, and, and, and it was sort of, you know, presented both visually and through a, uh, a website that they unveiled, Who Leads Us, and it's Who Leads, period, us, <laughs> important for, for folks to know, is that white men while they're 31% of the population, they hold 65% of the elected offices. Pause there, because I think it tells a really important story. And specific to women, if you sort of flip the numbers around, we know that women are over over 50% of the population, 51%, um, in fact. And if you look at all of the elected offices, and they looked at the county level up, 71% of the offices uh, held are held by men. 71 percent in 2014. That's true. It is true. And it's shocking. And so that leaves 29 percent for women. And this other piece of work that they did that 
that I think tells perhaps the most compelling piece of this story is that they also looked at people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they coded uh, in this data, they, they looked at gender and they looked at race. And I think the the you know, sitting in the in the sort of unveiling of this whole data set, the 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 one fact that I just I couldn't stop thinking about is that so if you look at, you know, tw- only 20, you, I know only 29 percent of the positions <laughs> held by women of those 29 percent, only four percent are women of color. Is this a party issue, do you think? That's a great question. So they looked at in terms of the messaging research uh, they did some breakdown between, you know, how Republicans versus Democrats mm-hmm. versus independents think about this, whether or not they care. Overwhelmingly, didn't matter what party wow. you affiliate with. People see this as a problem. People identify our government with an old boys club. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are. And this was, I thought, really promising, really showing showing an interest in solutions that get at the at the systemic barriers. Mm-hmm. You know, we often I think we we don't give people enough credit to know to you know so we sort of dismiss that people would care about okay there is a system and there's actual system here that we need to change mm-hmm. um, when in fact the the research um, overwhelmingly showed that individuals support policies that would make our government more reflective of the population. I see as as a politically informed constituent and former candidate even right. Uh, the parties will put forward, you know, a few candidates per cycle that have really great stories. And then it, it almost creates this illusion that both on the Republican and the Democratic side that they are much more Democratic than they Democratic with a lowercase d uh, than they actually are in the numbers. And when I hear it from from voters, especially men and older women, they mm-hmm. think that things have gotten better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a woman who ran for president. There was a woman who ran for vice president. Right. Uh, there are women in the Senate. But as you know, through these numbers, it's really not that high. Right. Is that message really connecting with the voters? It's a, it's such a great point. I think that there is, I, uh, as somebody who every year is very mindful of the messaging, especially going in when people, you know, we're sort of hitting that point in the election cycle right now when, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of voters uh, are paying a, a, a lot closer attention than they normally will as, as we're getting ready for election day. Um, and every time I hear the term, is this the year of the woman? <laughs> Um, right. It makes me cringe a little on the inside because I do. I think while it is important to build that momentum, it's it's sort of this counter of you want to present these examples, especially to the next generation of candidates mm-hmm. to say, look, women, women, women of color, women, period, can step up and do this. But there is a reality in these numbers that we can't kid ourselves. If we're ticking forward one percentage point each election Jeez. cycle, we are not going to see parity in our lifetime. Right. So we have to be thinking about new and innovative solutions to to our representation. We're speaking to Erin Los Cutraro of She Should Run, discussing a new study released this week about the barriers women face in running for office. So let's take a step, step back. I ran for office, and as we all know, I faced a lot of those barriers. And I've talked to dozens of women who've run and dealt with similar situations. I didn't choose to run. I was asked, and I was asked several times by several different people. It took a lot of phone calls to get me to consider. Are women choosing to run on their own? Uh, It's such a great question. So um, 
overwhelmingly evidence shows uh, time and again that the number one barrier to women not running for office is that they're not recruited at the same rate as men. Mm-hmm. Are these numbers changing? Yes, I would say, um, you know, we, we, we are trending in the right direction when it comes to women's recruitment. But clearly, we have over 500,000 elected positions in this Jeez. country. And from if the you're, local level all the way up. From the level. local level all the way up. And if you look at how these numbers are shaking out, you know, at the county level to mm-hmm. the state legislative level up, what is very clear is that women still are not raising their hands on their own at right. the same rate as men. And furthermore, when it comes to the recruitment, you know, it's really as simple as the who do you know game. And right. if you know, our elected positions are represented with over 70 percent men, it's not surprising that when the influencers like those men are thinking about who needs to run again, they're turning to their friends who, oh, big surprise, Mm -hmm. are likely to be men. And then, and then we're just, you know, we're we're a cycle. exactly. I had a lot of pushback at the local level. It was very much an old boys network, mm-hmm. and even some of the women who were involved in those parties were like, you know, wait your turn, start, start at school board or start in this way. And to me, it just it just seemed like they were continuing the cycle, they're perpetuating the system of forget about old men in office, but just old ideas. And when I work with women, and when I work with female candidates, they always bring forward you know, unique ideas and a fresh perspective, and they tend to lead in a very different way. Where do you think the barriers are? Is it at the local level? Is it at the national level? Is it at the state level? I think that, you know, you just hit on something that's really important and is, in fact, a a very different experience, I feel like, for men than it is for women. More often than not, women are told to consider running for office at the local level. Mm-hmm. And if you and I have had some very serious conversations with recruiters um, and influencers in states about why this advice, why this advice to get beneath, because sometimes it's fair. It's right. fair for based on what that person wants to affect in terms of legislation, sure. that there is a good match for this specific local position. But when it's a repeated advice, mm-hmm. what Often it's coming from, as that person will describe, a good place of we just want – we want to help build the build, the bench. We want to help mm-hmm. – you know, we want to make sure that she can get elected. What's unfortunate about it, though, is that same advice isn't given to men right. at yeah. the same rate. It is absolutely not given at the same – men are not questioned at the same rate about stepping up and running for a higher level office mm-hmm. right out of the gate. But women are. And, you know, actually Barbara Lee Family Foundation has Fantastic done some – Fantastic foundation. Incredible work around the different uh, level that voters hold, men and women alike, hold uh, women to in terms of qualifications. Mm-hmm. We expect more from women. And the good news is, and the research guides us in this, there is, there's an answer. Um, and that is, you know, that women, when they're running, need to, need to feel confident and talk about their qualifications out of the gate. And perhaps more than men, the research shows you actually have to do it. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in that case, it is important for women to lead with their qualifications. And in the case of women regularly being told, you really should think about local office first, to, to not back down and say instead, I am qualified right. and here's why. You mentioned barriers that women are facing when they're running. Money, institutional support. Can you, can you explain a little bit that people don't understand this until they really run sometimes, that it's not just, you know, having the party support, it's community support. That's right. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's right. One one important point I, I always, because as somebody who operates to encourage women to run, is that you know, statistics show that when women are on the ballot, they win at the same rates as men. Wow. They really do. So it's it's one of those moments where you have to pause and go, okay, we have some serious work to do in terms of recruitment. But that's not to suggest that the experience on the campaign trail isn't different and that the challenges that, that women face aren't different because they are. And there's a lot of evidence that shows, um, you know, we did actually some some great uh, research in partnership with Women's Media Center around uh, the sexism that women face on the campaign mm-hmm. trail. So this could be as simple. Some people pa- always pause in that moment and feel the bristle a little bit like sexism, I, you know, oh, no, is it, we're going to talk about that. Um, there's a reality of, you know, women, women, uh, and, and a good example of this is women's appearance being talked Scrunchies about. Scrunchies on Hillary Clinton. Right. Mm-hmm. Women's appearance, what what they're wearing, you know, is it a is it a pantsuit? Is mm-hmm. it a is it a skirt suit? How their hair looks, mm-hmm. how their voices sound. Um, overwhelmingly, women are talked about in terms of their appearance and and um, as opposed to leading with talking about their qualifications. Right. And the, the research that we did called Name It, Change It um, really looked at what, what women are supposed to do. So if this is a reality that, in fact, when your appearance is mentioned instead of your qualifications, that voters um, think, think less of you. Right. Um, which the research proved. So what are you to do? Well, the good news was that the research showed if you just call that out for what it is, um, using messaging like, I don't think you would ask the same question if, in fact, you're asked about you know your personal life, your children, mm-hmm. um, something that's happening to you and not your you know potentially, in that case, male opponent, mm-hmm. um, calling that out, or if they're talking about your appearance and not talking about your qualifications to make it clear that this race is really about what you can bring to the table in terms of being an elected leader, um, that what happens in that case is that voters know that because you'll stand up for yourself, that you will stand up for them and you actually get a little bump so it's a it's a nice uh a a little secret to for women to keep in their back pocket because it happens regularly to women on the campaign trail we're speaking to Erin los catraro from she should run uh so i find it interesting that you can talk about these things to different demographics and different demographics respond differently in this study have has there been any shocking uh revelation about how women of different age groups respond to this messaging? Yes. In terms of fascinating, in fact, in terms of the uh, research done by Women Donors Network, something that was really compelling to me in the reflective democracy messaging research that was done is, um, you know, they tested looking at how voters think about the the barriers or the structural barriers that women and people of color face to elected office, um, as well as um, whether or not this was something that was of importance to them to actually Mm -hmm. see a reflective democracy. And something that was really promising is that while there was a, a partisan gap in terms of how individuals think about the structures, think about the problem, the barriers. The great neutralizer was young people. Huh. Um, Interesting. That, you know, regardless of party, young people come together and see this issue of wanting to have a reflective democracy, wanting to have a government that, that looks like us, that looks like all, our entire country as something that 
is absolutely important for us to address. Um, and, and their thinking is really similar regardless of party. And I think to me that that is something that is just very promising in how we move forward in building a stronger democracy mm-hmm. um, that isn't as bound to partisan thinking. We had Zephyr Teach out on uh, the show Wonderful. today. Mm-hmm. And Zephyr, you know, recently ran uh, for governor in New York State. And what I found particularly interesting about her campaign was that she didn't really have institutional support. In fact, she was dismissed by the institution. And she was dismissed by a lot of feminist organizations as a female gubernatorial candidate. Uh, regardless of where her positions lie, and she was by no means an extremist, mm-hmm. she had union support. I was fascinated to see how much support she had from younger people and how that I believe that the the grassroots momentum behind her and why she did so well um, against, you know, a sitting governor who had so much support and so much money was I really thought that, you know, she ran outside of the normal uh, the normal ways, the normal means of running a campaign. To me, that was a reflection of, of this study. It's so fascinating. And I do think that, you know, that's a great example of where we're seeing especially with young voters, um, you know, I, I don't know that we can go as far as saying a rejection of the kind of right. institutional talking points, but certainly there isn't the same uh, level of sort of waiting for your marching orders mm-hmm. from a particular party institution, but instead, you know, this real reflection of uh, more of a grassroots type coming together um, around issues, coming together around, you know, common values, common beliefs outside of institutions. I think mm-hmm. it's really encouraging. There's been count, there have been countless studies about how women lead, and they do lead differently than men. This is some of the work that you do on a daily basis. Could you describe to our listeners the difference? Like, why is it so important that we get women in office? Yes. And other than, than policies, uh, bringing to light feminist issues and women's issues, mm-hmm. how do they lead differently? Great question. So I think at the end of the day, I think the most important thing to remember is that we are all smarter when we have diverse voices at the table. And in terms of, you know, the the, the different approaches that women take, um, for me, it really comes down to uh, the, the life experiences mm-hmm. um, that need to be represented in the voices of women who are not currently at the table, as well as there is plenty of research to show that, you know, in general, and it is generalization, but women do come to the table with more of a teamwork approach, more mm-hmm. of a solutions-driven approach to uh, to public office. Mm-hmm. I always love the research and to point to the research that shows that, you know, women run for office to get things done. Mm-hmm. And it's really clear, and in, in, even with the candidates that I've worked with over the years, um, this sort of <laughs> rejection of there's a formula to get elected um, in some, you know, in, in some individual's mind and in, in, in some that advise. And it, it often doesn't fit the, oh, but wait, you know, I'm, I'm coming to office to get something very specific, to, to, to serve mm-hmm. a very specific purpose um, and to accomplish, to get things done. This is not about, you know, sort of playing into a certain storyline that has to be played into in order to get elected. So there's sort of a rejection on the right. front end of that. But plenty of evidence to show show that women, you know, do bring that ability to work together, to be solutions driven. Um, and I, like I said, most importantly, to bring a unique 
perspective that currently isn't represented. So this show is all about how corruption should be a feminist issue. And we believe that, and there's been studies behind this. This isn't, you know, us making this up. We believe that for there to be less corruption in a democratic state, there need to be more women. And World Bank has analyzed that. NDI has, National Democratic Institute has analyzed that. Uh, and I think that we should be taking that much more seriously here in, in the United States. And I think that this study that, that you've brought to light today has proven that uh, and that the public wants that because clearly the public is is very unhappy with the way government is running things. And I think that this study is going to be very valuable. Erin, how can we find you? You can find us at sheshouldrun.org. Do you have a Twitter? We do. It's uh, at sheshouldrun. And where can we find the study? Who leads us. And it's who leads dot us. Great. And we'll have a link to that on our website as well at accountproject.org. And we'll tweet it out and we'll make it go viral. So we thank you very much for coming on the show today. Erin Los Cotraro from She Should Run, uh, bringing us in a fascinating study about the role of women in, in politics and how the electorate really wants more women. I think that's a good summary, wouldn't you say? I think so. Thank you, Naomi. Great. Thanks. Margie Omero is a managing director of Purple Insights, the research division of Purple Strategies. She manages all facets of qualitative and quantitative research for Purple's clients. At Purple, one of Margie's specialties is studying moms. She led the development of Purple Moms. She also led a bipartisan team studying Walmart Moms, a proven swing vote block covered by news outlets around the country. Before joining Purple, Margie founded and ran Momentum Analysis, a Democratic public opinion research firm in Washington, D.C. Margie's clients have included the DNC, Mayors Against Illegal Guns, Emily's List, members of Congress, nonprofits, and hundreds of campaigns around the country. She has been named both a mover and shaker by Campaigns and Elections magazine and a Politico to Watch by Politico. Margie, it's great to talk with you again. I know. It's so good to talk to you, too. So, you know, we're talking about how corruption uh, should be a feminist issue on this show. And I found this quote that I thought was very interesting from Celinda Lake, a Democratic pollster. And she was speaking to The New York Times last year. And she said, when voters find out that men have ethics and honesty issues, they say, well, I expected that. And when they found, found out it was a woman, they say, I thought she was better than that. When you talk to voters, do you find that they respond to women in a different way than they they respond to men? The short answer is yes. The long answer is depends a lot on case by case and and candidate to candidate and and what kind of demographic you're talking about. I mean, people want to make judgments that reinforce what they already believe. So if someone already supports a candidate, they're looking for a way to kind of validate what they already feel. Um, And if that means getting themselves twisted into gendered knots, biased gendered knots, then then they'll do that. Um, But other times, people will um, can see beyond it, too. I mean, if you look at, for example, Hillary Clinton is a great example. I mean, people don't um, talk about her being not tough enough, right? I mean, that's something that she obviously is very strong on. Um, Then you have other candidates who are seen as being not strong enough because maybe, you know, I've seen candidates, uh, voters talk about candidates having a family. Well, you know, the woman has, she has young children, so why is she running for office? I mean, you hear that that kind of thing uh, in races from time to time. So it, it depends a lot on the race, on the candidate, on the voter, and whether or not uh, new information about a candidate reinforces what they already think. Do you find that there are parts of the country where uh, they're more friendly to female candidates? 
there's still a few states that haven't elected a woman to a statewide office or to a federal or, or gubernatorial office. And you see women candidates running now in a lot of those states. I mean, Iowa is an example of one. Pennsylvania is one that's, we almost had a woman running for governor, but um, it, it lagging behind the rest of the country in terms of electing women. I, but I think you're going to see those things continue to change. I mean, you know, Massachusetts was one until Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you have a lot of these final dominoes uh, falling down. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting, particularly this time around, is you have women candidates in a lot of the top-tier Senate races on both sides of the aisle. You could very well have an outcome where you have women win in New Hampshire and North Carolina and Louisiana and Democratic women and have Republican women win in uh, Michigan and in Iowa. I mean, you also have Democratic women challengers in uh, Georgia and in Kentucky and a Republican woman running in Oregon. I mean, you have a lot of different states that are on the board, quote unquote, that are, you know, targeted races with women candidates. So you've been working with women throughout your career. Do you think that this is that that moment when people are paying attention to women's issues, whether it's domestic violence or equal pay? Do you think that we're facing this this sort of sea change moment that, you know, gay rights, LGBT issues have faced over the past, you know, seven to eight years? You know, we're definitely seeing a couple different big changes happening at the same time. One, you see issues like gay rights, uh, marijuana is another one, really moving incredibly quickly, moving way quicker than anybody expected. Once mm-hmm. you start talking about them, opinions change pretty pretty quickly and decisively. Issues like some of the issues as they pertain to women, like birth control and abortion, we seem to be constantly relitigating for some reason, right. over and over and over again, with you know folks sort of in their uh, battle camps, and then the folks in the middle wondering why are we still talking about this. But I do think we see a trend where uh, both candidates and voters are getting the sense that women have a powerful political voice. They make up a majority of the electorate. They decide elections. They put uh, Obama in the White House the second time around, which is not something that happens very often. And they uh, and they swing elections. And so I think you see a lot of uh, political reporters, a lot of candidates, a lot of party operatives really beginning to pay attention to the needs of women voters and that looking beyond simply abortion or education mm-hmm. as a sign of what woman voter cares about. You know, how do these parties find these women? Are they recruited? Is it coming from the grassroots level? Yeah, I think people have done a lot of research on this and, and Jennifer Lawless at American University is, is probably the leader in the country in studying uh, women's political engagement and what makes women run for office. And she tells a story. I'm now taking her anecdote, so this is not my anecdote, of, mm-hmm. of you know, talking to uh, a, a man and a woman. And the man said, oh, yeah, you know, asking the question, Have you, has anyone ever uh, tried to recruit you to run for office? And the man saying, yeah, that just happened to me the other day. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, give me an example. Well, I was at uh, an airport uh, bar, and I was talking to the bartender about uh, some issue that was on the news at that time, and he said, the bartender said, you should run for office. <laughs> and he considered that being recruited, right? And then uh, you ask a woman, well, you know, have you ever, has anyone ever asked you to run for office? Well, no, and not, you know, not even that time that the Senate minority leader called the woman into his office and, you know, you really should think about your career and your next steps and, you know, get yourself lined up. They didn't consider that recruiting while the guy being recruited at the airport bar considered himself uh, being recruited. So she tells it a little bit better than I do. But the point being that, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that men are asked more frequently 
and are ready to say yes more easily. Mm. And, you know, it's not simply, it's not a skills gap. It's a, you know, it's a recruiting gap. It's an, you know, uh, an interest in the job gap. Um, and you have also some women feeling like they need to be perfect in order to run. They need to have full mastery of all the issues. Mm-hmm. They need to have a perfectly clean life and that everyone they know needs to also have a perfectly clean life. You're listening to the Accountability Podcast and we're speaking to Margie O'Mara of Purple Strategies and we are discussing uh, the barriers women face when they're running for office and how the electorate responds to women. So how do different demographics, uh, Latinos, millennials, uh, people of color, how do they respond to women at the polls? Well, women do very well with a lot of those groups, in particular because those groups lean democratic and women candidates are more typically democratic, not always, but more typically democratic. But I want to just pause and talk about some of these groups and turn out this election because it's something that you hear a lot of in the press, worries that Democrats don't do well because then they're not going to do well this time around because uh, the young voters and women and minorities and Latinos and African-Americans who voted for uh, Obama 2008 and 2012 don't turn out in a midterm, and if they don't come out, then Democrats are going to lose. You saw a Politico story said, well, it's very simple. When women turn out, Democrats do well. So Democrats are trying to get more women to vote, even though women have been a majority of the electorate in every election since 1982. So it's not solely (laughs) Democrats need more than just women turning out at the polls because they already vote in higher numbers and in a higher percentage than men. So, uh, and if you look at the past two midterms, you had a 2006 midterm that was a Democratic wave and a 2010 midterm that was a Republican wave, the actual demographic composition of the two midterms was nearly identical. You had almost identical percentage of Latinos, you had almost identical percentage of African Americans, you had almost identical percentage of women and, and younger voters. Um, but, you know, Democrats did a better job in one year, and Republicans did a better job in the other year. So I think it's important as we think about what's going to happen this time around, and we think about um, encouraging people to vote, and also how we think about which party has the advantage, that it's not simply a matter of turnout. And turnout and persuasion don't exist in vacuums. They are related. So mm-hmm. if your message overall is not working, then you know, then your turnout effort may not work as well either. Do women have to uh, have a unique type of messaging? You know, I would say the one thing that women candidates should try to avoid is telling voters, vote for me because I'm a woman. Only a woman <laughs> understands X, Y, and Z. That is something that a lot of voters, women, older women, younger women, really kind of reject. It it's, takes you away from the immediate impact to voters, right? It's less. It's more about the candidate, not about the voters. The voter wants to know what you're going to do for them. They they care less about sort of your process um, as a candidate. And two, it also is a red flag for people who want to believe that they're voting for the person, not for the identity and want to believe that we all have equal opportunities to succeed and calling out gender inequities that affect you as a candidate, not gender inequities affecting voters, is something that just, it, it continues to fall flat. And you don't see a lot of candidates doing it either, but it's something definitely to be avoided. You see a lot of men doing it, bringing up these issues right before the election. <laughs> right. I guess you do have men saying, look, I, I get you. I understand you. I have a wife. I have a daughter. I have a mom. Right. That you see a lot of because they're trying to make themselves seem accessible. But for women, there was a little bit of a double standard there. I mean, another double standard is, you know, the talking about one's family. You know, I, I've worked for a lot of candidates 
who are men who had an ad showing all of their beautiful children. Look, here are my five kids, my, you know, my youngest one, my oldest one. Look how cute this one is. They are, they all are. Thank you. Things about me. You don't see as many women candidates showing their five children and visibly as you see in men, uh, in a lot of men's ads, because they don't want to maybe have voters wonder, well, are you ready to run for office, which mm-hmm. you sometimes hear about candidates getting that kind of pushback. I've also seen an you know, ad where, I've seen a couple ads like this for, for a male candidate asking his wife, you know, the wife is in the ad saying, well, honey, I think you should talk about X, Y, and Z. I think you should talk about how great you are, you know, running the household and creating jobs. You would never see an ad for a woman candidate where her husband's saying, in the ad, saying, Honey, I think you should run on you know, how much you care about families. I mean, you would never see a man, a husband, in an ad for his wife uh, because it would make people think, well, maybe he's the, really the brains of the operation. So I think those are two examples where the backstory ends up being total, you know, completely flipped. The way candidates try to credential themselves mm-hmm. is completely you know, reversed. And and on the other side, you also have women who are being criticized for not having families, for not being married. I mean, there was a, a well-known situation here in New York where public advocate Tish James, Letitia James, when she was running, uh, was being criticized because she was single and she wasn't married and she was putting her career ahead of having a family. And she pushed back. And I, you know, obviously she won, so she did great. But you know, how do you navigate that as, as you know, when you're working on a campaign, how do you talk to a female candidate and say, like, all right, so don't talk too much about your family, but then also, you know, you have to be sensitive to the fact that people care about having lawmakers that are married and identify with the voters. You know, remember really where, where it's coming from and why voters have these questions or, or have these concerns. And they want to make sure that you understand what their lives are like and you get them. And for some people, these are just cues. They're not all foolproof cues. They just use them as cues rather than knowing everything there is to know about a candidate. They're shorthand. And I think being able to understand that and put yourself in voter shoes that way rather than, you know, taking it personally or seeing it as, a, you know, comba- from a sort of defensive or combative crouch is one way to understand it. The second thing I would say is to you know, really run as, as who you are, as something that's true to you. Put an authentic authentic tale and narrative out there. If you try to position yourself as somebody that you're not, try to make it fe- seem like you're from someplace you're not, or that you speak with an accent that you don't usually right. have, or that you went to school where you didn't really go, or what have you, um, th- that always ends up putting people at disadvantage because a lot of voters can see through that. How have women electeds and candidates shifted over time? Like, what, you know, what does their profile look like today versus how it looked five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? I think you have a lot more different avenues possible. And I think that is a huge, huge, great change, right? I think you had a couple different avenues before. You had sort of the advocate, the like family crusader and advocate type, mm-hmm. like a social I don't want to say social work because that's a little narrow, but like, but a uh, you know someone who's been sort of direct services then then running, and then you also had the legislator legislator candidate, mm-hmm. right? Now you have all kinds of different women candidates. You have you know I mean look at Monica Webby in Oregon. I mean she's mm-hmm. a she's a you know doctor who wants to run for office, and that's not profile we see very often in a woman, I and mean, so um, in a woman candidate rather. So you know I think there's lots of lots of new paths for women candidates to take, and I think that is great 
development because you know it should be this it should be the same type of circuitous route that mm-hmm. we all take in our lives you know it's not just you know women don't have to simply just walk in a very clear precise pattern of the ladder people have different kinds of meandering paths from their early stages of their career to when they decide to run for office so I think that's a sign now that that the process is a little bit more open to women so where do you see plight of the female candidate going in the next let's say five years because things are moving so quickly. Well, here's what I would like to see. I would like to see women candidates and women voters really, you know, partnering to demonstrate that women have the real political power in this country, Mm. to really tap into that uh, uh, underused, under-recognized power, where the issues that we're focusing on in campaigns are women's issues. They don't need to be called quote-unquote women's issues, because they affect the majority of the, you know, majority of voters. But we see women, you know, being unabashedly talking about women's issues, women voters unabashedly rejecting candidates who are just simply not trying to appeal to them at all. And that would be a huge, you know, and also to see Republican Party reach out to more women voters and women candidates. I think all of that, if you take, and I say this as a Democrat, so I see the the end result of all that being a great outcome for women voters and women candidates. Margie O'Mero from Purple Strategies, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Where can we find you? Do you have a Twitter uh, handle? Yes, it's Margie O'Mero, M-A-R-G-I-E-O-M-E-R-O. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. We're here with Zephyr Teachout, the author of Corruption in America, a new book that comes out this week, associate professor at Fordham Law School, and recent gubernatorial candidate in New York State. I think there's at least two things that would make a big difference. One is just change the way we fund elections. I I know it sometimes sounds like a fussy reformist thing, but it's a real feminist issue. You know, a lot more women run for office when you have publicly financed elections. Really? Yeah. What do you think the the correlation of that is? If you don't have the old boys club behind you, it's hard to even imagine. Zephyr, thank you so much for joining us today at the Accountability Podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. This show today is about what the role of feminism is in corruption and how they go hand in hand oftentimes. And as I examined this further, I I really saw that it was an institutional issue. The parties really don't support women uh, at an early level the way that they seem to on paper. When women are elected, they usually are elected in special elections, unique situations where they're appointed. So it's very hard for a woman to come up from the from the grassroots and win. And when that does happen, you know, money plays a big role in that. What was your experience like? Who recruited you? How did you become such a big voice uh, in this party in, in such a short period of time? I was recruited, um, which I know is a very typical story for women. Um, I'm, what might be a little less typical is that I um, I was approached by the Working Families Party initially, and I immediately um, not only just said yes, but I was out of um, I was out of state actually teaching elsewhere, and I flew back to New York and sat down for a meeting because I wanted to be recruited so badly. Mm. So I sort of jumped on the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, what I what I do see is um, there's actually there's some interesting research, recent research suggesting it's a correlation, not cause, causation, but that women who were athletes in high school are more likely to run for office. Huh. And one of the theories is that you're more comfortable with losing. Oh, <laughs> that that sort of the um, the comfort with. Uh, competitive sports in which you can succeed but also fail and come in third or come in. I was a runner. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that the 
that one can compete and, and, and not win and it's still worth doing right. is a really important lesson. Sports isn't the only way to learn that. Um, and then obviously I was concerned, as I think anybody entering public life is, um, certainly women, about the portrayal of women mm-hmm. um, in the media. And uh, the way that I dealt with it, and I'd be fascinated to talk to other um, female politicians about it, is I, when I talked to reporters, I would uh, tell them the research that I knew. Hmm. Um, that um, physical portrayals of women, whether or not positive or negative, actually lessened the likelihood that people would support them. So even if you talk Hmm. about somebody as an attractive candidate, um, attaching that kind of sort of superficial gloss on the candidate has a tendency to make voters see them less as a um, as a potential leader. Mm-hmm. So I would sort of give reporters that information and then say you can choose whether how to report this race. Um, did you did you give them that response when they said things? No, I gave it questions? preemptively. Ah. <laughs> um, and we got very little coverage of um, in a way that I was surprising and gratifying to me. But very little coverage of what I wore. Yeah, I was I was really surprised by that. Reading through, you know, very rarely did someone say female candidate Zephyr Teachout. Was that because some of the women's groups were split with, on this race? I, I don't think so. I was always thrilled when they said I was a female candidate because I wanted people to know that my name, which is sort of odd, right. was a person and a woman. <laughs> but, <laughs> I feel your pain as a nomiki. <laughs> yes. But. Um, no, I actually I, I don't know exactly what it came from, but we were certainly proactive in at least talking to reporters behind the scenes and then giving it. You know, you can't tell reporters what to write, mm-hmm. but you can at least uh, give them the information that they could themselves be doing something that would hurt the chances of women running. Mm-hmm. I mean, something I really care very strongly about is um, the role of public financing and women running. And there's evidence. Again, it's correlation, not causal. Mm-hmm. Um, that women are far more likely to run when you have a public financing system. Mm-hmm. And the theory um, is that if you don't have a handful of extremely wealthy friends who you are willing to go and ask for 40, 60, mm-hmm. in New York, $120,000 mm-hmm. donation, um, then you're less likely to run. And um, but if you just have 400 great friends or 400 people that you've been organizing with, if, say, you're a school teacher who has been organizing around, um, you know, bringing more funding to schools, a public financing system allows you to run in a way that the current private system doesn't. What states, what regions do they have public financing? Well, New York has New York City has public financing. New York State needs public financing. Um, Tish James, who's the public advocate mm-hmm. here, says there's no chance she could have been elected without public financing. Mm-hmm. Um, she believes strongly that public financing is a feminist issue. Um, Maine, when Maine passed public financing, one of the first people to run was a waitress. Wow. Um, who said that there, without public financing, there's no chance that she would have run or could have run. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly what the psychology is behind it, but I know that public financing makes a big difference in who runs for office. Are there unions or special interest groups that support public financing in New York State? Yeah, um, almost all the unions do. I think I'm trying to think if there's an exception. Um, and it's uh, right now we're on the verge. Um, we're if we have a Democratic Senate, we can pass public financing, um, and that you know that's where my focus is for the next uh, five weeks is pushing for a Democratic Senate so we can pass public financing. I mean, New York State is embarrassing in the number of women in office. 
Oh, it's yeah. It's um, it's uh, you know, it's not just it's embarrassing and it's a tragedy and it really affects um, policy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's one of the reasons that we are behind on um, family leave, mm-hmm. which is a key issue um, for all women. Mm-hmm. When you have men in office who don't necessarily naturally think this way, I mean, it's not a criticism of men. It's just as women we tend to think about women's issues differently because they affect us. Sure. I also think it's a signal. Like, if you look at a company and the board is all male, there's a lot of evidence that the companies who have all male boards or only um, token women do worse than companies that have a greater mix. And it's, I think, evidence that board members aren't being selected for their for what they're bringing. Right. And so it's also a signal of a broken system when you have so few women in it. It's, it's evidence that it isn't working mm-hmm. and that we have to fix it. So uh, this leads to your book, Corruption in America. Examining the history of America and how corruption has evolved over time, you know, I think that we human beings always like to think that it's, it's never been worse. And I don't necessarily buy that. It's pretty bad right now. I mean, well, <laughs> that, they, this is actually one of my favorite, uh, you know, potluck conversations, which is when were we at our best? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, what year? Um, and, it, and the question reveals a lot about what people value because you can value different things. But I would say in the last um, 20 years, really, we have become more and more unequal. Uh, opportunity is lessening for people who are mm-hmm. poor, um, uh, middle class, and our political system is also becoming more unequal. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I wouldn't say it's the worst you know, it's certainly not the worst time. I think of the um, 1900, whenever I become dismal about our current situation, mm-hmm. I think of how bad it was in 1900 when um, the suffragists had organized mm-hmm. and failed. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a civil war, and yet African Americans had no economic power and mostly couldn't vote. And the tycoons had taken over our political system. And so what one of the great things that history teaches you is not just that it can be better, but also it can be worse, and we can get out of that. Right. And um, so what Teddy Roosevelt's sort of the Teddy Roosevelt's two prongs of his response to the um, crisis, the real crisis in the economy and democracy, was public financing of campaigns mm-hmm. and antitrust. And I think that those are the two areas we should be really focused on now as well. Does that start at the state level, or do you think that's something that the federal government should well, the federal government should do it, but there's more movement possible at the states right now, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and New York, for all its pathologies, also has um, <laughs> enough irrationality that there's moments and opportunities and openings. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the state level, you can connect with voters more directly. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, imagine running um, nationally uh, with $800,000. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that we actually, I mean, I certainly support the efforts on the federal level, but my own efforts are on the state level because I think that's actually where we can have real, real movement on antitrust and real movement on public financing. Who are the biggest uh, backers? What groups? Backers of what? Of, of uh, public, well, we already talked about public financing, yeah. but antitrust and, and who are, and who stands in the way? Well, I so voters right, understand this. <laughs> right before I, uh, I ran for governor, I was in the process of forming a group called the Antitrust League <laughs> uh, because they're, uh, you know, there's a sense of despair around big companies mm-hmm. um, that we can't break them up. They just are sort of part of an economy. They're part of capitalism. They're part of a market. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, FDR. Um, really, his administration really led breaking up thousands of companies. Um, 
And starting in the early 80s, Reagan basically took all the power out of antitrust, and it's been gone ever since. So I think we have a lot of work to do to renew that. Um, where the current energy is around that is in stopping the Comcast-Time Warner merger. Right. Um, but that's just an example. Like, why, why is that bad for for our listeners? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this stuff is just very complicated for everyday people. I mean, how do you explain this to an average voter? Why is it that these mergers are bad? I actually so. In some ways, I think it's not that complicated. One of the highest polling phrases you have right now is too much power is concentrated in the hands of too few. Mm-hmm. Um, all I'm saying and all that Teddy Roosevelt and FDR and Jefferson believed is you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have too much power concentrated in the hands of too few. So it's a problem. I mean, cable's easy an easy example. It's a problem because the prices are too high, right. um, because new competitors can't come along because the market is dominated. And uh, because it limits the amount of information you can get because you're only getting information that is approved by Comcast or approved by Time Warner. So this election season, I I was able to get away with um, going on Comcast Time Warner shows and talking about Comcast Time Warner, but not without response or in some cases just a caution. From from the companies themselves? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. In what but, way? But, well, go to uh, MSNBC mm-hmm. and try to find anybody on MSNBC talking about the labor dispute um, between Comcast and its workers. You can't find it. It's not present. Um, and we don't know, but this is something that you would think that a Democratic channel mm-hmm. would be talking about. And um, we have every reason to believe that the reason they're not talking about the contract fight is because Comcast doesn't want them to talk about the Comcast, uh, mm-hmm. the contract fight. So what would happen is I would be about to go on a show and a producer would sort of wearily say, you can talk about Comcast, but you just be aware that we may have to do a disclaimer. <laughs> wow. Um, and uh, when I was on um, New York One once, uh, the person I was talking to just laughed when I brought up the merger. So it's an issue. Yeah. And and right now it's an issue where there's still room to talk about it on these shows. But if Comcast and Time Warner merge, it's going to be a lot harder to talk about the political threat that Comcast and Time Warner pose. Think about the Murdoch properties. Do you see in the Murdoch properties um, anti-Murdoch sentiment? You don't. Right. So mergers are extremely dangerous for our political um, conversation, our future. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're also terrible for the economy. You can't have, like, to me, the heart of a, a thriving economy is a small business economy. Mm-hmm. And um, and big mergers just make it harder to have a truly competitive marketplace. I've done some work overseas, and one of the most fascinating things that I see in these new democracies is that they are so willing to have corporations come in and help them build their infrastructures because they do invest a lot of capital in, you know, having faster internet or, uh, you know, building streets so that their companies can exist there. You know, New York doesn't necessarily have that problem as much, but maybe upstate, maybe other regions of the country where, where communities – the small business is already gone. Walmart's already come in. And, and and now it's like to exist, they need those larger companies to continue to invest in the infrastructure of those regions. Yeah. But I mean, right now it's in part because um, the lending policy supports lending to the large companies right. and not um, it isn't lending to small businesses. So it's a poor proxy for the kind of um, uh, basically banking system that I actually think we need to support a small business economy. So what is that? You know, there's so much to talk about in terms of, of uh, lending policy, but I, I would put it in a way that the listeners can understand is that you've got to start with what you want and then move backwards. 
So if you want a small business economy, you should have a banking system that supports a small business economy. Mm -hmm. And right now, instead, we have basic, we have some of the most concentrated banking we've ever had in this country. Mm -hmm. So because we support banks so aggressively in our uh, federal system, we get to choose what banks do. The sort of most important political lesson, I think, is just that all things are possible, that history mm -hmm. isn't already written. So we should be talking about the world we want and then, you know, imperfectly fumbling towards uh, the best way to get there. Good note to end on. Thank you, Zephyr Teachout, for joining us today. Uh, where can people buy your book, Corruption in America? Um, well, um, since I spend a lot of energy uh, <laughs> talking about how we need to rein in Amazon, I would recommend that you go to the Google it and go to the Harvard site and buy directly That's from my publisher, Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> and we can follow you on Twitter at Zephyr Teachout. At Zephyr Teachout, yes. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Accountability Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Accountability Podcast. Special thanks to our guests, Margie O'Mero, Zephyr Teachout, and Aaron Loscutraro, as well as our executive producer, Andrew Tint, and our managing director, Dina Ragab, as well as the entire Accountability Project team. Next week, join us for our show where we talk about the role of journalists in a democratic society and how they play an integral role in preventing political corruption. We'll be joined by Wayne Barrett, who's an investigative reporter at The Village Voice for four decades, and Michael Oreskes, the vice president and senior managing editor of the Associated Press. While it's not always campaign season, it is always corruption season in New York. I'm Nomiki Konst, and I'll see you next week.